Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at AntiochChurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hello, Antioch. I am so glad to be with you digitally today. My name is Sean, and I'm one of our pastors here on the team And I'm looking forward to spending some time talking about our gospel text from the lectionary today on the fourth Sunday of Advent. But first, I wanted to give you all a brief update about what I've been up to these first few months on the job as the new pastor of Community Information. As we've all experienced, COVID has impacted our lives in countless ways. For me, it's been such a bummer that I've entered into this new role as community pastor, and I'm not really allowed to meet the community in person. So I've been meeting with many of you on Zoom and hearing about your experience in Antioch, particularly when it comes to your experience in community and how you've been formed in this place. It's been encouraging to hear some of the amazing stories of growth, deep friendships, transformation, and being shaped in the image of Christ. I've also appreciated the honest feedback that I've received from many of you about things that have been hard, underwhelming, or ways in which Antioch has missed the mark. And you haven't scared me off yet, okay? I've been grateful for your willingness to welcome me into this beautiful community and let me be a listening ear to your experience. With all the listening I've been doing, I'm looking forward to crafting a way forward together over the next few months to continue to help our community move from convenience to commitment. So stay tuned for updates. And if you want to connect with me, I'd love to find a time to hear your story. Well, today is the fourth and final Sunday in the season of Advent. We talked about this when we began this season of the church calendar, so it's apropos to say it again as we conclude it, but Advent is not Christmas. It's really easy to combine the two and make them into one thing, but they are distinct from one another. Advent is a season in which we actively anticipate God's arrival in our world. It's characterized by expectant waiting. It's a journey of preparation, like Lent to Easter. It's how we commemorate God coming as the light of the world and overcoming the darkness. Pete also mentioned the threefold nature of Advent, past, present, and future, that is also described as history, mystery, and majesty. We live in the time between the times. What I mean by that is that we know that God has come into this world through Jesus and that he will be coming back to establish a new heaven and a new earth. Our reality is in the already but not yet which seems to make sense in this season that we find ourselves in. While a vaccine is not a panacea for all of the problems we've encountered in 2020, it does feel a little bit like a light at the end of the tunnel, but we're not there yet. We're waiting in expectation for a return to a more normal world. I don't know about you, but I'm eagerly anticipating a world in which I can see other people. I'm coming over to all of your houses for dinner when this thing is over. And I look forward to that day, but now I have to ask the question, how am I going to live in this present moment when things are not as they are meant to be? Describing this tension, Anglican pastor Tish Warren, she puts it like this. She says, to practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache, our deep wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. Ultimately, our hope that is in the midst of this season of Advent, you have experienced an acknowledgement and recognition of the darkness, 
but that you would also see the light at the end of the tunnel. In this way, we see how Advent gives us proper perspective for Christmas. The joy we experience at Christmas is trivialized if we first do not acknowledge the pain and darkness present in the world by recognizing Advent. So as we conclude the four weeks of Advent, I think our text today gives some great insight into how we can choose to live our lives in this in-between world we live in. So as you've heard and experienced as we've journeyed through the lectionary the past few weeks, our gospel texts for Advent and Christmas this year come from the book of Luke. When it comes to the events leading up to and including the birth of Jesus, our two choices come from Matthew and Luke. Mark and John are basically Scrooges. They hate Christmas because they just jump ahead pretty much starting with the baptism of Jesus. But Matthew and Luke, they give us pictures of these events. Overall, in the Gospel of Matthew, the author seeks to demonstrate that Jesus is king. In Luke, we really see the emphasis that Jesus is a person, that he was fully human. A few other things I love about Luke is he loves to give shout-outs. He mentions minor characters more so than other gospel accounts. And he elevates and celebrates women more than any other gospel writer. As an outsider himself, Luke wanted to make sure those who felt like outsiders knew that they were actually insiders to God. Today, we'll be looking at a scene in Scripture that is known by the fancy term of the Annunciation. This story only appears in Luke's account because he focuses on telling the story from Mary's perspective compared to Matthew who tells the story from Joseph's perspective. Our text for today, it begins like this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, I know that these are all familiar characters and names to most of you, but Luke is setting the stage and context of this important encounter. He's being a little more specific than once upon a time or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. He starts off with the when. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, and she is pregnant with who we traditionally know as John the Baptist, or as others call John the Baptizer, or John the Forerunner. He's telling us the where in Galilee, and more specifically, in Nazareth. He's telling us the who, with the main characters of the angel Gabriel, Joseph, and Mary. But if you look a little bit closer, he's doing even more than that. First, he's deepening the eventual link between John the Baptist and Jesus. He's tying them together because John will prepare the way for Jesus and play a big role in the story to come. The where is significant too, because it provides a contrast to John. Elizabeth and Zechariah, who are the parents of John, uh, their encounter earlier in this chapter takes place in Jerusalem because John's heritage was priestly. But we see that this encounter with Mary takes place in Nazareth, in Galilee, because Jesus comes from the line of David, as was foretold by the scriptures. And what about Gabriel, the other big player in our story? He is familiar too. He is an angelic messenger of God whose name literally means God is my strength. He has already appeared earlier in this chapter to Zechariah in the temple in Jerusalem, informing him about the improbable pregnancy and upcoming birth of John. But we also know him from the Old Testament as well. Gabriel appears in the book of Daniel, again as a messenger of God, 
who helps Daniel of lion's den fame to understand his visions and prophecies about the Messiah to come. We begin to see that Gabriel is a figure whose appearances are not only intended to disrupt the everyday dealings of an individual, but to alter the circumstances of God's people and the entire world. The text continues with Gabriel's greeting to Mary. He says, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, I love this part of the story because of its honesty about Mary's reaction. An angel has appeared to her, called her highly favored, said the Lord is with her, and she's like, yeah, I don't trust you. What's the catch? What's going on here? What do you mean by that? And if we look at Mary's life, her response makes total sense. I imagine that before this very moment, Mary had never been told that she was highly favored. We have to remember that Mary was probably very poor, only around 14 years old at this time. So when a strange angelic figure appears out of nowhere to declare, you are favored, I bet she had to ask herself, am I favored? Like, really? Or when Gabriel says, the Lord is with you, she probably thought to herself, are you sure? Is God with me? I, I don't know about that. We'll come back to this later, but the text, it continues. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So in response to her feelings of great trouble, trouble, Gabriel tells her, do not be afraid. And these, again, are words that we have heard before. Gabriel said these exact same words when he first appeared to Zechariah earlier in this chapter. And this admonition to not be afraid will also appear in the next chapter of Luke after the birth of Jesus, to the shepherds who are quaking out in the field, an unnamed angel will appear and comfort them with these same words, do not be afraid. So whether it's Gabriel's interaction with Zechariah, speaking with Mary, the shepherds out in the field, we see that each instance is accompanied by an awe-inspiring and unusual moment that sparks a lot of wonder, but a little bit of fear, too. We'll even see this same practice taken up by Jesus in his own ministry, reminding people consistently and constantly that they do not need to be afraid. And, and I want to be clear here that this isn't God telling people that their fear should be ignored or that they aren't valid, but instead that God sees their fears and he is there and present to comfort them we'll begin to see this pattern that at the moment of God's divine interventions, assurance is offered before a message of celebration. We see with Zechariah and Elizabeth, when they thought they would never be able to have children, that God gives hope to those who are without hope. We see in today's text, in the interaction with Mary and the ultimate birth 
of Jesus that God gives miracles to those who are not looking for miracles. We see in the shepherds that God disrupts those who are merely going about their daily routines with his presence. And God's assurance is for all people, regardless of social status, gender, or class. Zechariah was a priest, and he had access to resources, power, and influence, and he is comforted by God. Mary was a young woman, and she lacked all the power and prestige associated with Zechariah's position, and she was comforted by God. The shepherds, they're just the working class out in the fields with no connections, and they find themselves comforted by God. So we see that these moments, in these moments, God offers assurance before celebration because he knows that is what we need, even if we don't know it or express it. You also may have noticed that Gabriel's words to Mary about Jesus sound a bit familiar as well. The text, it says this, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Our Old Testament reading from today from 2 Samuel prophesies these very words. This passage talks about making for you a great name that you will reign over your people and establish the throne of your kingdom forever. What Luke is doing here is speaking to us through the past, the present, and the future. We're taken back to God's promises in 2 Samuel about the Messiah to come. We're reminded of the future, that God's kingdom will never end, so that we can be assured now in the present before the celebration. The text continues. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Again, I love Mary's response here. She's like, um, are you sure about that? I am aware how babies are made and I haven't, you know, this is a family program, so I'm not going to go much further than that. But needless to say, Mary is a little bit confused and expressing her doubts. And one of the things I love about this, that instead of like in Matthew, where Mary is talked about, in Luke, Mary is talked to, and she responds with questions and insights. Her questions lead Gabriel to tell her maybe like 1% more of the overall plan, but it's where we learn the interpretive framework for Luke's gospel in verse 37 in response to Mary's question. In the NIV, we heard it today as, for no word from God will ever fail. Maybe you've also heard it as, for nothing will be impossible with God. This is how we understand the miraculous pregnancy of Elizabeth and Zechariah in their old age, giving birth to John the Baptist. This is how we begin to understand the conception and birth of Jesus. 
But this idea also extends to Luke's entire gospel. The crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus are all illuminated when we understand that nothing is impossible with God. It's this understanding that leads Mary to declare she is the Lord's servant and says, May your word to me be fulfilled. But what may be the most significant part of where Mary ends up in this passage, declaring that she is the Lord's servant, is actually how she gets there. If we trace her arc, we see that throughout this entire interaction, Mary is perplexed. She's confused. She has questions. She's skeptical. Right from Gabriel's greeting, she is perplexed and unsure. When Gabriel tells her she is going to give birth, she responds with, how can that be? You know, that makes no sense. Even in the end where we have that famous phrase of, I am the Lord's servant, we don't hear her say, oh, okay, I, I get it now. Consider me fully informed. I'm apprised of the situation, operating under 100% clarity. Keep me posted if anything changes. No, Mary makes no statement to say that her confusion or her perplexity have gone away. Instead, she offers herself up as a servant just as she is full of confusion and perplexity. So maybe, just maybe, perplexity was what God was looking for in someone to be the mother of God. The news flash we get here is that the woman who is going to give birth to the Son of God, who will have to tell her fiancé the news of a pregnancy that will only stir up controversy and scandal, who will travel great distances on camelback while pregnant, and the one who will eventually sit at the foot of the cross, begins her adventure in a state of perplexity because perplexity leaves the spirit open to be touched by God. When we know all the answers and live in a world of black and white, we actually close ourselves off from hearing from God. It's in the complexity of the gray spaces of life where God often meets us in the most profound ways. When we express our doubts, when we ask our questions, when we admit that we are confused, God meets us in that place. One of the ministries that I've loved being a part of over the past few years is something called Alpha. Alpha started at a church in London, and what Alpha does is it helps churches and organizations all across the world create spaces to invite people to explore faith. Alpha, it promotes the idea that it's important to, to offer environments for people who are exploring or struggling with faith, where they can feel safe. At places like Alpha, questions are encouraged. Doubts are welcome. Confusion is invited, and perplexity is a sign of someone wrestling with the big questions of life. I think back to a guy in one of my Alpha groups recently named Larry he was married, had two amazing kids, and their family was connected to church. But for him, he never really felt comfortable. He always had these big questions. He was filled with doubt. He wasn't sure he believed everything that he was told to believe or that his family believed. And he felt bad for feeling that way. But when he came to Alpha, he found a space where he could be honest about those feelings. He could be honest 
about his challenges, his struggles, and his confusion about God's involvement in the world and whether God even existed. Over the course of our time together, as Larry could ask his questions and talk about how unsure he was about faith, Larry's spirit began to open up. As he began to see that he didn't have to have all the answers or get it just right, God met him in that open space and filled him with his spirit. What we see in Larry's story and Mary's story from the text today is that perplexity isn't something to look down upon, but a trait God is often looking for. Pastor and writer Lillian Daniel puts it like this, sometimes it's in admitting we don't have all the answers that suddenly we can hear a whisper from another place. Sometimes in admitting that we don't get it, we open ourselves up to get something from God. Sometimes when we stop talking and stop giving ourselves the answers to our own questions, we allow ourselves to be filled up with something new, with Jesus even, who chose someone who was confused to bring him into this world. Admitting we don't get it or have all the answers isn't something very celebrated in our culture. Just think about the traits we think of when we look, look at ideal leaders, whether it's CEOs, coaches, politicians, pastors, you name it. We want someone who knows what they want. They're clear about it. They make a decision. They stick to it. We don't necessarily look for someone who admits they aren't sure or they're perplexed. But Mary is a leader who shows us a different way. Her life emulates why these are traits God is looking for in people he wants to partner with in this world. We see that Mary wasn't perfect. Mary wasn't immune from failures. She wasn't sinless. She was fairly ordinary. But what made her unique was in how she used her confusion to draw closer to God that her doubts invited questions that led to trust. Her spirit of curiosity helped her transform and put her in a place for God to use her to transform the world. That God chose Mary not in spite of her questions, but in step with them. Mary's story shows us how God moves us from who we think we are to who God has called us to be. That it turns out in the end, in order to be a part of God's plan, you don't actually have to understand it all. Not only are questions or doubts permitted, they are a part of the journey of discipleship. So maybe you are someone who doesn't feel a lot of doubts or have a lot of questions when it comes to faith. That's amazing and should be celebrated. My encouragement for you is to think about how can you cultivate an attitude of curiosity in your life to open up space for God to move? What are the things in your life that you see as black or white that might have a little gray in them? How might God meet you in that intermediate and that in-between space? Or maybe, maybe you are someone who has lots of questions and you have plenty of doubt. Maybe you have questions about this whole Christmas story or about a diagnosis or why you are spending Christmas alone this year, or why some of your family members are sick, or why you can't find a job. 
And what is God going to do about all those things? What I want to make sure you hear is that you are right where you need to be. And I know God will meet you in the gray space you inhabit. That being perplexed and asking questions is a spiritual practice and that you are opening yourself up to hear a whisper from God and be filled with his spirit. As Henry Nouwen says, an essential part of the journey of faith is learning to live the questions that arise, to wait on the Lord, to pray our pain, to accept confusion, and hopefully to move forward in faith, hope, and love. So Antioch family, may we be a perplexed people who begin to experience for ourselves that nothing is impossible with God.